Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. On today's show, how a $3 billion investment is repairing a naval base in the Mojave Desert following the 2019 Ridgecrest earthquakes. Plus, the host of a podcast about the Central Coast shares some of the region's lesser-known communities worth visiting. But first, two Fresno City Council members announced last month a new pilot program that would equip street vendors' carts with cameras. This effort comes a year after the murder of street vendor Lorenzo Perez. KVPR's Mati Bolaños caught up with two vendors to see if they feel safer on city streets. Miguel Ruiz is scraping ice to make a raspado or snow cone from the ice chest on his cart. It's a Friday afternoon, and students at Lane Elementary School in southeast Fresno are getting out of class. A young boy asked Ruiz for two snow cones. Which ones, he asks. Vanilla, he says. Nearly 30 years ago, Ruiz arrived in Fresno from Guadalajara, Jalisco, in Mexico. He worked in the fields for 10 years before giving street vending a shot. When he first started selling, he said it was rough. The first years, it was difficult because there was so much violence, robberies, and insults, he says. People would throw things at him as he pedaled through the streets. He says the harassment lightened up for him over the years, but street vendors in Fresno have remained especially vulnerable. What he never expected was to hear another street vendor, Lorenzo Perez, murdered in the same neighborhood he works in. Ruiz says he never takes a day off, but after hearing the news, he took an entire week to process his co-worker's death. It could have been him, he says. Soon after, Fresno City Council members reached out to him and a few other vendors to start the Fresno Mobile Food Vendor Association. Councilmember Miguel Arias says it's meant to help vendors file business taxes or apply for business licenses. Now, Arias and Councilmember Luis Chavez are testing out a pilot program that will attach Rubik's Cube-sized cameras onto street vendor carts. Luis says both the business license and the camera make him feel safer. He feels like that's helped, too. People don't try to rob him because they see the camera and it does work, he says. Right now, 20 street vendors are trying out the new cameras. Arias says the goal is to equip all 200 vendors in the city of Fresno through funding from the Small Business Assistance Program. These are by far the most vulnerable retail vendors that we have in the city, and they're simply trying to survive and provide for their families. So that's why it's critical that we protect their safety and ensure that they can engage in the you know, economy. Genoveva Islas is the director for Cultiva La Salud, which works with low-income Spanish-speaking communities. She says aside from deterring possible attacks, the cameras are also helpful if someone does assault a street vendor. Then there is some footage that can help document who committed that crime against the vendor and bring them to justice. Just two blocks north of Lane Elementary, Armando Franco's cart sits in a neighborhood outside a home. He's slicing a corn and placing the kernels into a cup with mayonnaise, cheese, and some peppered chile. In the 13 years he's worked as a street vendor, he says he's been attacked and robbed more times than he can remember. But since the camera was installed on his cart, he's had fewer problems. Hablando sin inglés entre ellos. He heard them talking amongst themselves in English. They were planning to punch him and then run with the food, he says. But then he heard them say they saw the camera. In the end, they didn't rob him. But despite this incident, Franco says he doesn't think the camera is all that useful, especially since he doesn't have a phone with internet. 
está grabando. They told him the camera was recording, but he says it's not working for him because he has to be able to connect it to a phone with internet. He says he'd feel safer if the camera came with an alarm that could alert the police of an assault or robbery. In the meantime, Franco says he now carries pepper spray and a taser to defend himself. For KVPR News, I'm Adi Bolaños. This story is part of the Central Valley News Collaborative, which is supported by the Central Valley Community Foundation with technology and training support by Microsoft Corporation. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. This next story you'll hear comes from our colleague at KCLU in Thousand Oaks. It's called the 101, and it's about the communities that hug Highway 101 from Thousand Oaks up to San Luis Obispo. In this excerpt, host Michelle Lockton looks at what it's like to be undocumented for a really long time. We're talking decades. She speaks to people living and working on the Central Coast about their lives and what worries them most. Today, we'll hear from two of the people she interviewed, Vicente and Avelia. Michelle picks up the story. When I meet Vicente, he is dressed formally in a beautiful suit. His hair is impeccably styled, and he's an extremely friendly person. Vicente is not his real name. He's asked that we change his name as he has a job that is quite public, working with nonprofits in the region helping families in need. Vicente was brought to the U.S. when he was 14 years old and has been here over 30 years. I remember not wanting to come. I was happy. I was very poor. But because that was my environment, I didn't know otherwise. I knew we, we struggled to, to eat. For Vicente, it felt like being brought against his will. Pretty much told that we have to do this. In order for you to have a shot in education uh, or getting an education or in life, we have to start over somewhere else. In his time in the U.S., Vicente has earned two bachelor's degrees and a master's degree. He owns and runs a small business, but Vicente is humble about his achievements. I don't consider myself successful. I I consider myself limited in what I can do. And within my own limitations, I've been able to somewhat achieve a certain level of, I guess, success. But I think I've been resilient enough to um, avoid telling myself that I can't do things. Limitations because of his undocumented status. It's like living with some sort of disease and you just forget about it, right? And you forget that you're sick and you just go on about your life without thinking there's this thing that holds me back. I'm not going to think about that. I'm, I'm going to continue moving forward. The biggest challenge, Vicente says, is the inability to fulfill your dreams to the fullest extent. It's kind of the golden cage. A golden cage in a golden state. California has so much to offer, but not so much for the undocumented. I guess if I had the papers, I could probably pursue a bigger role in society. I just don't. I don't have that yet. Vicente says it's human nature to want to belong, to be part of a club or society. He says he's been in the U.S. so long he thinks of himself as American. At some point in my life, I came to the realization that Spanish is no longer my first language, even though that's what I grew up speaking, that I'm able to have a more... um, I guess, in-depth conversation in English. And therefore, I've, I've become, quote-unquote, an American, whether we want it or not, whether a paper says you are or you aren't. I don't think of myself as someone without status, as someone without documents, as someone who is from another country. I consider myself a member of this society, and, I, and this is my home. And... The law may say something, but the reality of the day-to-day life is different. Vicente has attempted to gain legal status, but his case remains in limbo in immigration court. The final undocumented person you'll meet today is Ivelia. It's in Port Wainimi that I'm welcomed into Ivelia's home. 
Avelia's hair is tied up neatly and she's fussing around her home when I arrive. It takes her a little while to finally sit down for the interview. The walls of this home are filled with pictures of her children and grandchildren. As I look at the pictures of the family, I learn about their incredible achievements. Evelia is undocumented, but her children are citizens, and so they've been able to take on careers in the U.S. Navy, the Army, the Air Force, and one is a successful ranch manager. Evelia's daughter, Ruth, joins us that day to act as translator. Ruth works for a member of Congress. At the family's request, I'm only using their first names to protect their privacy. Evelia has lived in the U.S. undocumented for more than 30 years, But after all these decades, she's recently received some good news about her immigration status. A petition made by one of her children for permanent residency had been accepted after previously being denied. This is still a journey ahead, but if all goes well, she could get a green card. I asked Evelia what it was like to receive that news. Ruth acted as translator. O oh, cuando Vanessa me habló diciéndome que había llegado el, el papel de migración que me habían aceptado. Mamá said she was very, very happy and overjoyed. You know, after 30 years of being in this country, you know, um, it does bring a lot of overjoy in that moment. You can't really feel it, but when you do, it's it's a sense of pride, and she's very she thanks God for it. Evelia's eyes are filled with tears throughout the interview. It is incredibly emotional for her to have this conversation. I ask what getting a green card would mean. Después de 34 años estar aquí, pues sí. A veces she's saying there's a lot of barriers obviously after being here for 34 years. Um she wasn't able, you know, to travel very much when she got notification. Obviously it did bring a a tremendous amount of emotion, but mostly she said that what she realized was that she would pro- if this continues and eventually if she does get it, um, her green card, she'll be able to travel and back to see her parents because after 34 years, she hasn't been able to go back. There have been many difficult times for Evelia and her family. They've slept on floors and lived in bad neighborhoods where there was gun violence and always feeling like they're in hiding. I asked her what worries her the most about being undocumented. Mis nietos. Que, que eres... Los veo y, y este, y los She's saying um, her biggest worry, if, you know, as that comes up, is uh, her grandchildren. Uh, <laughs> it's funny that she's telling me this, but <laughs> uh, yeah, she says that it's, you know, it's hard thinking. You know, she, you know, we only have, she only has two, and, and um, it's hard thinking of the idea that if she gets, like, if this gets denied or if something happens overturned and, the thought of being like sent back is like unbelievable to her. It's a strain in her heart. Like that's the one thing she wants is that if she can get through this without the idea of leaving, it would be like the best thing in the world having her ch- her grandchildren raised alongside with her. I asked Ruth, Evelia's daughter, what this process has been like for her and her siblings. I mean, it's a sign of relief. Um it's hard. Um, yeah, it's a sign of relief, not just for me, I think for my brothers, for my sister, you know, for our cousins, you know. Um, it's 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 not like a big, big uh, news, but it's like enough to be like, okay, we're on the right path. We're almost there. Ruth says as a child, they didn't really understand the consequences of being undocumented. It was common in their community. I mean... It, like we grew up in like a very agricultural place, so the majority, like the majority of like the kids I went to high school and like middle school and everything, um, we were all have like the similar story. Ruth knows her parents and her mother have relied on her to help them through this process. Your parents might rely on you a lot to get things done. It's because they don't know, you know, they're still strangers to a country they've called home because they don't know the systems yet, because they've been invisible for so or tried to be invisible for so many years. So that's where they rely on us. Those were the stories of Vicente and Avilia, two of the over 2 million undocumented people living in California. They were interviewed by Michelle Loxton for the 101 podcast. I spoke with her about the project. You know, a lot of people here in the Central Valley think of the Central Coast as, you know, a 
vacation destination that is, you know, primarily made up of a bunch of really affluent communities. But what I think is so interesting about your podcast, and and this was certainly evident in the clip that um, we just heard, is that you shine a light on the diversity of the region and uh, the economic and the environmental challenges that are facing the people who live there. What are you hoping to accomplish with this podcast? Well, the 101 aims to share in-depth stories about our community. So I can take a 20-minute episode to investigate the impacts of exceptional drought in our region, for example. I can take or report on the many, many devastating aspects of the fentanyl crisis in our community. The podcast is all about taking a deep dive into the issues, the discoveries, and the conversations that are important to California Central and South Coast. Yes, many people immediately think of affluent communities in our region like Santa Barbara, for example, but I've covered the affordable housing issues in that city and in the piece that you just referenced there, the lives of many undocumented people living in our community, working in restaurants and as farm workers. So a lot of issues that are important to our community. You know, and, and, and hearing you talk, you know, it, it just strikes me, you know, how many of those issues are also relevant here in the Central Valley, you know, be it drought, be it affordable housing. It really speaks to how interconnected we are here in California. Absolutely. So you also cover many of the environmental issues uh, that are facing the Central Coast, including how to protect the region's wildlife population. Tell us a little bit about the Animal Crossing project that's in development. This is a great story. The The 101 podcast isn't just about the difficult things happening in our community. It's also about the exciting and inspiring things. So last month, construction work started on the world's largest animal crossing. It'll be built in a city called Agora Hills, which is just north of uh, Los Angeles. And it will be the width of an American football field going over 10 lanes of the 101 highway. It's a story about a solution for an environmental problem. And that's why I love telling that story because, you know, there's this highway in our area, the 101, which is so busy. Animals and habitats have been cut off from each other for decades because of the highway. So the animals will either try and cross the highway, they'll get hit by a car, or they just don't even try at all. So scientists said we need a wildlife crossing. So they put this proposal together and they said, okay, it's going to cost $90 million. And they went to the public, raised all that money, 60% private funding, 40% state funding. And I wanted to speak to the people building it and get all the, the details about it. So what will it look like? How will they plan to convince the animals to use it? And I learned so many wonderful things about it. So these massive sound barriers that will be put on it. And um, they've considered everything from native plants to soil ecology. So it's an episode that's about, you know, the in-depth story of the world's largest animal crossing right in our community. You know, and another episode, speaking of animals, uh, that I really encourage folks to listen to um, is about the comeback stories of the monarch butterfly, the Pismo Beach clam, and the Channel Island fox. Now, you know, I want folks to listen to the podcast. I don't want to give anything away, but maybe you could give us a little teaser. Sure. So I love telling this, this story. So we get, as you know, so much bad news about climate change and nature all the time. But I started noticing all these good news stories about nature in our region. First, there was this incredible resurgence of the Pismo Beach clam. So there hadn't been a legal size Pismo Beach clam since the 1990s. Well, there hasn't been, um, meaning that no clam that's been found is big enough to be fished. And then last year, after years of very few clams being found on the beach, they started seeing thousands of them. And so they aren't legal size yet, but scientists are hoping this resurgence will lead to the illegal size Pismo Beach clam in the next few years. And it's this amazing comeback story for Pismo Beach, which is a city that is very much staked its whole identity around the clam. And then there was the comeback story of the monarch butterfly. So this has been widely documented, but the butterfly 
almost disappeared in 2020. Um, and then there's a city called Galita, which is just north of Santa Barbara here in my region. And they have this huge butterfly grove. Um, the butterfly is actually on the city's logo. So you can tell it's a big deal to them. And then in 2020, they counted 16, one six butterflies in the grove. Um, and it was really, really sad. But luckily last year, the numbers climbed significantly to 9,000. So it was a happy story for the city, but they know that they need to do more for the butterfly. So they're doing this massive restoration project in the Grove. And I, I looked at that for the episode. And the final comeback story for the episode was the Channel Islands Fox. Now, these are cute domestic cat-sized red, white, and gray foxes. And, um, they're found on the islands just off of our coast uh, on the Channel Islands and at one stage almost went extinct. And it was because of this awful knock-on effect from the dangerous chemical DDT that was dumped in the ocean. It's, it's a long story, but long story short, thanks to a huge effort by scientists, which included captive breeding, they are now thriving on the islands. And I went to the Channel Islands to see how they were doing and um, see how they managed to save them. So it was three comeback stories, to, uh, three feel-good stories for uh, one, one episode. So you're wrapping up the second season of this podcast, and, and you've told a, a variety of stories over the course of, of those two seasons. Can you give us an example of, of something or a few things that you've learned in the course of your reporting that surprised you? Well, I'd say one of the stories that I worked on for this season um, that surprised me was the mental health crisis of young people in our community. So um, I remember listening to the U.S. Surgeon General at the end of last year saying that young people were experiencing a mental health crisis. And I, I wondered if that was being reflected locally. The answer is yes, and I had no idea how bad things were. So to give you an idea of what's going on in our community, I visited a, a local school district and spoke to the person that oversees their mental health programs. And to paint a picture of the situation, she said her team used to know by name the children that were really struggling. So these were the children that they were most concerned about. And then last year, things got so bad, they had to create a spreadsheet with all the names. In the last school year, there were 82 psychiatric hospitalizations in that district that the district is aware of. And some of those hospitalizations were students cycling through multiple hospital stays. They also have these district provided Chromebooks that students go home with, particularly during the pandemic. Um, and they notify counselors if a student searches something like, I want to die, or how do I end my life? And last year, they followed up on 600 students typing in those types of things. So this was shocking to me. Um, and surprised me a lot. I spoke to a lot of young people for the episode and they, they shared a lot of their ups and downs with me, but also what is really helping them right now. That is, that is really stunning, um, stunning to hear. And I'm, I'm sure something that, you know, is facing our community as well. Um, well, let's end on a, on a slightly more positive uh, or, or optimistic note. I, I, obviously, I think many of our, our listeners are, are familiar with communities like Pismo Beach and, and Morro Bay. But before I let you go, what are some of the maybe lesser known towns or communities that you suggest people check out along the Central Coast? Okay, so I have a few ideas here. So we've talked about the Channel Islands. They're incredible. Um, if you love camping, and you like hiking, it's definitely worth a trip to the Channel Islands. And of course, there's the Channel Island foxes, um, which you'll see running around the campground. They're just there and they're very mischievous. <laughs> they actually get told that when you arrive, they, they know how to open tents and use zippers and are, are known to open backpacks and steal food. Um, but yeah, the Channel Islands, they're, they're described by scientists as taking a trip back in time to see what California would have looked like if it wasn't inhabited. So it's home to animals and plants that you'll see nowhere else in the world. And some are so ancient that uh, one scientist told me it's like the equivalent of coming across a woolly mammoth. So the Channel Islands are amazing. Um, for the final episode of season two, I, I spent some time in the Santa Ynez 
Valley, which is about an hour south of Pismo Beach, and it's just north of Santa Barbara. And I visited the Santa Ines Band of Chumash Indians Reservation to learn about their new museum that is slated to open in the fall. It's going to be this incredible museum that has the task of sharing the history of Native people who've been in our region eight thousand years. So if you're looking planning a trip to our region, I would consider the museum when it's finally opens later this year. There's also the Chumash Casino if you fancy, fancy a bit of gambling. And also not far from the reservation is also the town of Solvang, which is really well known as the Danish capital of the US. Basically, it's this Dutch style architecture in town and they have events and they have a Yule Fest at Christmas time and, and lots of beautiful wineries as well. So I think those are a few of the things that people don't normally think about when they think about coming to California Central and South Coast. Well, I've been talking with Michelle Loxton, the host of the 101 podcast. Michelle, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your work with us. Thank you so much. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Over 4th of July weekend, 2019, the area around Ridgecrest in the Mojave Desert portion of Kern County was jolted by two huge earthquakes. Particularly ravaged was the nearby Naval Air Weapons Station, China Lake, which develops and tests weapons and aircraft for the Navy. A 2019 Navy presentation put damage estimates in the billions. Now, almost three years later, the base has broken ground on most of the major repairs needed to recover from the quakes. To learn more about these repairs, KVPR's Carrie Klein spoke with Navy Captain Lori Scott, the commanding officer of the OICC, the agency on base that's responsible for most of the construction. The first earthquake happened on the 4th of July. So we quickly gathered a team to help out with the response effort. They arrived on the 5th of July just in time for the second earthquake, which was much larger, that was a 7.1. What they discovered was over uh, 200 facilities that receive um, uh, moderate to significant uh, damage uh, once they got on site. Right. And as far as I understand from, from some of the earlier reports, there were dozens of buildings that required more than $5 million each to repair or replace. Some of those included hangars and laboratories and air traffic control tower. Is that is that accurate? Yes, that is. So um, there, there were several buildings that were um, significantly damaged, particularly uh, buildings that were um, built back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s before California upgraded its seismic code around 1991 after a major earthquake event up north. So uh, that consisted of uh, hangars, uh, air traffic control towers, uh, some of the laboratories. Uh, China Lake has over 40 major laboratories. Uh, Some of those were damaged as well as some of the uh, test facilities um, on the installation as well. And those particular facilities uh, that were um, damaged um, beyond repair uh, that falls on uh, my command, uh, OICC China Lake, to uh, build replacement facilities for those. Right. So the, the damage there was so extensive on base that that NAVFAC, um, this acronym you mentioned, the Naval Facilities Engineering Systems Command, uh, the Southwest Office, actually created a whole new office at China Lake to manage re, uh, you know, earthquake construction, the OICC, which you're commanding officer of. So can you talk more about what is the OICC? What's, what, what is its mission? Yes. Yeah, so so uh, in the response, we um, took an integrated approach. So Naval Air Warfare Center Weapons Division, NOCWD, they provided folks to support the response along with NAFAC. So in OICC Channel Lake, we have both NAFAC employees as well as NOCWD employees. So it allows us to take a... Um, more efficient approach, if you will, to to executing the program because uh, we have not only the execution agent, but the end user, if you will, who is uh, going to uh, be using these facilities when we're done. Okay, great. And so at China Lake, the OICC recently broke ground on a few big earthquake 
recovery projects, uh, topping out $2.7 billion worth of construction projects, in fact. So talk about these projects and some of the some of the bigger ones and what they'll do for the base. Absolutely. Um, so we've gone and awarded uh, all 22 projects. And as you said, totaling $2.7 billion from a program value perspective. So the big project that we're doing, we're rebuilding the airfield at China Lake, consists of six projects. So we got hangars, air traffic control tower, aprons, uh, advanced laboratories, as as well as uh, firefighting uh, station, the whole nine yards. Uh, We're also um, rebuilding a a lot of the facilities that were out at China Lake Proportion Labs. That's where NOCWD do a lot of their energetics. So a lot of uh, test facilities, as well as magazines to support different types of uh, ordnance. We also have um, community support facilities to consist of a gymnasium and a multi-purpose religious facility. All the projects have moved from the design phase into the build phase, which means all contractors are on site and actively executing construction. So there's a lot of excitement around the base. And so it typically takes seven to nine months to complete the design phase, but we fast track certain elements of the design that that has allowed us to stay on schedule and in a few cases ahead of schedule. And the funding for this largely came from the National Defense Authorization Act, correct? Uh, Yes. So um, 22 projects, 18 of those projects are what we call military construction projects. And um, those projects or line item appropriated um, and they're in the uh, NDAA, as we call it. And then um, we have uh, repair projects as, as well. So this is a tremendous amount of work um, undertaken in just a few years after this, these major earthquakes and also during a pandemic. Talk about how the construction is actually being carried out. So is there's three, there's three or four buckets from my perspective, right? There's... Um, keys to success. The mere fact that we're an integrated organization, NAFAC, NOCWD, integrated where you have the construction agent, right? Execution agent and the end user integrated. That's a big deal. And we have some world-class contractors uh, working for us as well, uh, who have worked through these supply chain and labor issues to stay on schedule. I mean, we have the best of the best. And those workers, I think it's important to point out, and these are workers from, from across the county as well, they're making sacrifices similar to what I've made in the military. They're away from their families, living in these temporary employed housing, and they're doing that not only to support their family, but to support our mission. And then from a community uh, support perspective, uh, the local community has been, been behind this recovery effort from day one. You know, they, they, They're the ones that advocated for the resources and they've stand ready to support us in so many different ways. Um, It's been really a joy, if you will, to be in a community that is um, really, really supportive of the Navy and our efforts. There's challenges. So early on, through various industry forms, we identified uh, that uh, there wasn't enough housing in Ridgecrest to accommodate just the sheer volume of construction workers. Uh, So We worked uh, with the installation as well as with the city to build a temporary employee housing. So that's been a game changer in in a lot of ways in attracting the right level of talent within the construction force. Also, uh, what's been impressive is we are on schedule uh, and given all the things that have happened with COVID and supply chains and things of that nature, I would also add that there's uh, 800 workers on site uh, right now, and we're ramping up to roughly 1,200 workers max on site uh, late calendar year 2022, uh, early calendar year 2023. And we're currently executing about $1.5 million in daily construction production per day. And we're going to grow at, at, at our peak, we'll be at 25 to $3 million uh, daily. And that's going to happen um, later in 2022. Wow, that's pretty impressive. And so these projects are, they're really ambitious and they sound really exciting. Um, But I also wonder, I mean, how do they affect, or I should say, how do the earthquakes affect the mission capability of of the base? I mean, has has the ability to actually carry out 
missions, do testing, anything like this actually been affected in the meantime as these construction projects are being carried out? So, so the base currently has a degraded mission capability. So uh, they're not operating at what we call full mission capability. Uh, once the projects are complete, then they'll be back to FMC. They're able to do uh, some of their core missions, but not as efficiently as they would be if, they, if these facilities were not uh, damaged. But they're, they're operating at a degraded capability. And so when do you expect construction to all be finished? What's the timeline moving forward? So, so the first project will be 100% complete uh, this fall. And that's the uh, replacement of the gym and multipurpose religious facility that was damaged during the earthquake. So we're going to have uh, our first ribbon cutting this fall. By the end of 2023, 70% of the projects will be complete. Uh, by the end of 2024, all Milcon projects will be complete. Uh, we'll only have one repair project remaining, and that will wrap up in 2025. Okay, well, fantastic. Well, Captain Lori Scott of Naval Air Weapons Station, China Lake, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Hey, Carrie, thanks. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Dr. Janine Nkosi is a sociology lecturer at Fresno State who received the university's Outstanding Lecturer Award this year for her unique approach to teaching. I spoke with her about how she uses community service as a tool to help students learn while giving back. We're hearing so much about the extent to which children and young adults are struggling with their mental health right now. And, and you know, before we get to, to service learning, I just wanted to touch base with you. Anecdotally speaking, how are your students doing? Mm, it's kind of all over the place. As a part of our check-in when we meet for class, you know, there's always a welcome. There's a reminder to students to bring their whole selves into our, um, into our shared learning space. There's a reminder that they can come as they like, and there's a check-in question so that we can really check in on each other. And we ask each other, how are you doing in this moment? And the reason why we ask that is because, you know, we're still in a pandemic. I know that things are, um, you know, being lifted, different protections, right, are are being lifted, but we're going to be in this pandemic for decades to come because there's a lot of fallout. And so, yeah, so we ask each other, like, you know, how are we each doing in this moment? Sometimes we ask what's bringing each other joy. Um, We ask each other things like, what are our people in our space? What are their most pressing needs in, in that moment, what they need right now, so we can figure out how to take care of one another? I mean, I have students who are incredibly stressed out because they don't know how they're going to pay rent or they are, you know, skipping meals and not, you know, eating, eating well because they're, you know, struggling, (laughs) right, to pay rent and to pay bills. Um, I have other students who are doing well in terms of like their financial stability, but they are isolated. They're taking the majority or all of their classes on Zoom and they have not had a lot of interaction with friends or family or you know people in the community and so they are feeling depressed feeling lonely for some students who are coming out of the zoom and going back into the classroom they'll express feeling awkward feeling uncomfortable trying to navigate being back in the classroom space and and what those social interactions are like after coming out of, you know, being sheltering in place, right, for, for more than two years. I've got students, too. A lot of my work is around land and housing justice. And so I have students who are living in overcrowded living situations with their family because the, the rents have skyrocketed and uh, the incomes haven't kept pace. And so they feel like they are a burden to their family who had, you know, an expectation and a hope that they would have launched from the home. And so they're feeling stress and they're feeling frustration over what they had hoped and imagined their life would be like at this stage. And so, you know, I have been able 
to, through my work, help to get students connected, not only with campus and community resources, but also just really with one another. Holding that space and asking students to be vulnerable to the best of their ability, to their best of their capacity. Um, it grows for sure over the course of the semester, their trust, their willingness and security, right, to be vulnerable with one another. And so we listen deeply. We give love and encouragement, um, whether it's through words or you know, folks turning on their microphones and sharing encouragement, using their emojis, sharing different resources and coping strategies and things like that. That I think is also something that's really special about this um, approach to teaching. Um, yeah, so it's been really heavy teaching in a pandemic. Sure. I mean, I, I really relate. I, I teach journalism at Fresno City College, and many of my students are experiencing the same struggles that your students are. And, and I've found myself as an educator taking time in the classroom to just create a space for students to learn how to connect with one another, how to communicate with one another, how to support one another, um, both in my in-person classes and online. Um, it just yeah. really changed the dynamic of, of teaching, what we've yeah. been through over the last couple of years. Absolutely. So, and when my students enter our space, um, we have a playlist of music that uh, we I have been curating with students, right, over the years. They are reminders. Oh, let me oh. interrupt. I want to know what's on the playlist. <laughs> oh my goodness. The playlist has everything from Kid Cudi, Beyonce, some of the artists that I know, you know, Kendrick Lamar, uh, some artists that I don't know. Um, and it's a really beautiful collection of different backgrounds and culture. And it's like cross like generational, right? Like multi-generational. It really tells the story, I think, of the Central Valley, uh, right? How rich and diverse and beautiful um, the Central Valley is and, and, you know, the city of Fresno. So, you know, I really wanted to uh, take this time to learn more from you about uh, this concept called service learning, uh, which I know you do with your students. Can you explain what that is? Yes. Um, so when I first started teaching at Fresno State in 2011, one of my classes had this uh, service learning component that would uh, create an opportunity for myself as a faculty member and my students to connect what we were learning from the classroom into our communities, right? The communities where we live, where our loved ones, right, live. And there would be this bridge between our classroom and our and a community that either where we live or our new community, if folks had, right, uh, relocated to Fresno State. And it is a beautiful way of really bringing the curriculum to life, where now we're not only learning a concept in a book, or I'm giving a lecture on it and helping to unpack and explain what it is. But we are putting that learning into action in our community and we're connecting it to maybe things that we are observing in our own daily lives. And students share that they have a much deeper understanding of the book learned material, of the concepts, of the, the skills that they're developing uh, they feel more prepared to apply this learning to their future careers. Um, they can see the ways that they can transfer what they're learning in one this one sociology class into the other classes and, and what they're learning, you know, in their other programs. And they develop incredible leadership. Um, their leadership, right, um, grows. Their confidence grows. Their connections to one another are really deepened and they often share that they always wanted to get involved in the community, but they didn't know how. And so service learning also just creates an opportunity to really connect all of us um, to really important work that's happening in the community. Can you just give us an example or two of, of the kind of, of work that students do? Absolutely. The Anti-Eviction Project. It started in um, 2019. 
where I don't know if you had ever encountered Matthew Desmond, a sociologist out of, I yes. believe it was Harvard or Princeton, right? He had written, like done this really incredible um, ethnography, uh, really shining light on the evictions crisis. And so uh, the Fresno Housing Authority um, was um, bringing Matthew Desmond out to Fresno. And then our College um, of Social Sciences was able to reach out to his team and the Fresno Housing Authority to invite him to Fresno State to give, um, you know, an important talk on his research. So, you know, I had already been doing lots of housing research and policy work alongside many community partners. And so we uh, were reached out to by the folks at Faith in the Valley and CCLS to find out, could we document the state of evictions in Fresno? We knew um, the community had already been lifting up that there was an evictions crisis, but what's the scope and magnitude, right, of evictions in Fresno County? What's the impact of evictions? Um, what are some of the, the solutions, right, things that people had implemented in other jurisdictions that were effective at helping to stabilize housing? We, for Fresno, didn't have those answers, and so we set out to answer those questions. And so um, it started as <clears throat> it always does, a classroom community, um, what's called participatory action research project, um, which brings together residents who are doing incredible work, faith leaders, community benefit organizations like Faith in the Valley and Central California Legal Services, and our university, um, our sociology department, our sociology students. We developed a project together um, where we pretty much replicated Matthew Desmond's work. Um, so we set out to find out how many evictions are happening in Fresno County. And to do that, we just, it was a virtual learning space. Like I said, it brought together um, all of the, the different stakeholders that I mentioned. And we started to look around, like how could we you know, find the records and how could we document this? And then from there, we just, you know, we developed our methodology. We started to extract thousands of court records from the Fresno County Superior Court. And so we developed, you know, a list of um, variables that we wanted to extract from these court records to tell as rigorous and comprehensive a story as we could. And so, you know, there we had like students and community folks once a week. We met on Zoom and we, you know, developed these different like toolkits, trained each other, um, trained other folks that wanted to join us, um, extracted all of these records, scraped the data, to, uh, put it uh, together in a spreadsheet, cleaned up the spreadsheet and then started to do our analysis and analyze the data. And then we worked together to uh, write uh, the very first community-based report was called Evicted in Fresno. And students were a part of every piece of that process. Uh, they were learning about the huge disparities, right, in housing court legal representation. They're learning about how quickly evictions move through the formal eviction process. Um, they're there sharing space with, with attorneys and residents who are experiencing the housing crisis and the evictions crisis and giving really important testimony about what the experience is like for them. And even students in our space sharing that they themselves have an eviction on their record. And so we, yeah, collectively, we were able to um, write this really important um, community-based research report called Evicted in Fresno. Um, and the beautiful thing about having organizations like Faith in the Valley, um, who are a part of the spaces, these folks are grassroots community organizers that work alongside clergy leaders. And so rather than just producing this report, which in and of itself was really incredible, it was amazing and really powerful, right, for um, the city of Fresno and Fresno County, well, we were able to learn how to put that research into social action. And so now you've got, you know, Faith in the Valley and resident leaders who are teaching us how to do really important communications work to meet with folks like the New York Times to have a research meeting with the Fresno Bee editorial board. And then students also wrote questions, right? And were prepared to engage with Matt Desmond when he came to campus to share out the work that they were doing alongside community. Um, they, in organizing, um, really love, you know, Faith in the Valley. 
um, they taught us, um, you know, who are the targets, right? The people that can um, help to um, pass the policy recommendations, right? That are associated with that, re that report. And how do we, what is a strategy, right? And what are the tactics for trying to um, get these recommendations really put into practice? And it was just incredible. I mean, I have chills, you know, just thinking about all of the the work, right, that went into this one campaign that then evolved into what we call, you know, the Right to Counsel Coalition, which grew, and we were successful. This coalition was successful. We did fall short in passing a Right to Counsel, but we were very successful in um, working alongside the city to enact things like the Rental Housing Retention Grant Program that, you know, allocated $5 million initially from the CARES Act funding. We were successful in using this community research to help get things like the um, eviction protection moratorium passed in Fresno early on in the pandemic. We were successful in getting an eviction protection program. Every semester, it's like the baton is passed to the next group of students who come in and they take their place, if you will, um, alongside community partners and myself and other Fresno State sociology faculty, and the work continues. It just sounds like an incredible experience for, for your students and, and one that is a deeply impactful. I've been talking with Dr. Janine Nkosi, sociology lecturer at Fresno State. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. And that's today's Valley Edition. You could hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You could also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show is produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, Mathi Bolaños, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment, health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org slash health equity.